0: Thresholds Holds Radio, with your host, John Stevenson. This is a of radio. According to UFO
1: activity. And there in the darkness, a on things. the ground, ghosts. knocking on the walls. something crawling the ghost it's obvious, in It's obvious that she has
2: been Why? Oh my God, there are seeing this? There is a real phenomenon, what's the evidence to is?
1: A formation forming.
2: That's
0: You're listening to Thresholds Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is John Stevenson. On tonight's show, we're going to be talking about the reality of ESP and remote viewing with Russell Targ. Also, we have Michael Clean and much more. We're going to start off the show right away with Russell Targ. Right after this quick commercial break, you're listening to Thresholds Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com.
1: Welcome back. With us now is Russell Targ. Russell is a physicist and an author who is a pioneer in the development of the laser and laser applications. Also was co-founder of a previously secret Stanford Research Institute's investigation into psychic abilities. Russell has co-authored nine books. His latest book is The Reality of ESP. Russell, how are you doing today and welcome to the show.
3: Well, I'm doing very well. I'm celebrating my 78th birthday and the publication of my new book, the Reality of ESP, subtitled The Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. So I've spent the last 40 years doing ESP research for the government, and we're always writing books called Looking for ESP, Investigating ESP, so at this point we're willing to say that we've proven ESP beyond any reasonable doubt. and I even have an endorsement from Brian Josephson saying that that's the truth. Josephson, the Nobel laureate in physics, so of course I'm very happy to have a good review from him. So we're saying now that uh, it's unreasonable to doubt that there's something like psychic ability available to people who can quiet their mind.
1: Exactly. I've always believed there was too. I, uh, I've come from a bit of a psychic family. This is what, this is your ninth book that you've co-authored too, right? That's right. Looking at your bio here, I see that you uh, were the pioneering in the development of the lasers and then you got into ESP and remote viewing. Kind of a jump there. What actually got that? Have you always been interested in uh, remote viewing and ESP and that type of thing?
3: Well, as a college student, I was doing magic on the stage. Nothing that a child likes better than the fool adult, so I was doing mental magic. And I would often have the experience of standing on stage with the light shining in my eyes, pretending to read somebody's mind, and I would have the experience of knowing more about that person than from the slip of paper that I had secretly read beforehand. Oh, okay. So I would be standing there and say, there's someone in the audience who's lost a dog. And of course I know someone's lost a dog because I've read this slip of paper previously. And a woman will stand up and say, oh yes, can you help me find my little dog? Which I of course cannot do. But I sometimes have a picture of that woman's house. So I'm saying, do you have a white frame house with a tree in the front? When you walk in the house, you can walk up the stairs on the right, and your bedroom has a patchwork quilt on the bed. And, of course, you'll be blown away. I don't do that every time. But sometimes I will get that visualization. And as a college student, it became obvious to me that some kind of psychic ability is available. And since I was a young scientist, it became more interesting for me to begin to read the technical literature of parapsychology and meet with J.B. Ryan at Duke University and begin to learn something about professional parapsychology and at that point I gave up running around doing magic on the stage and got interested in real magic. Fast forward 40 years, I'm now doing remote viewing workshops internationally and I'll stand on the stage and now I'm doing real magic. I'll tell people, I have an interesting object in the box next to me here. Can you quiet your mind and describe the surprising images that come into your awareness? And most of the people will do pretty well, and some of them will do excellently. So the secret in teaching people how to get in touch with a part of their awareness that's psychic is to give them a task that they can do. For example, if I tell you that I've got an object that needs a description, and I'll ask you to describe the surprising things that pop into your awareness, you can do that. A very similar sounding task would be, I've got a box here, can you tell me what's in it? And that you generally cannot do. And the secret here is that psychic ability is a non-analytic ability. That you can describe shapes, sizes, colors, textures, all quite accurately, and draw a nice picture of the shape of the object. But the viewer is usually the last person uh, to actually know what it is, because that's analytical. Right. And this was all understood in the 8th century. The Buddhist teacher, Padmasambhava, the historical person who brought brought Buddhism from India to Tibet, Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book, a lot like my book. His book is called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. And the object here is to move your awareness from ego-based awareness, where you're interested in defending the story of who you think you are, to move from the ego and conditioned awareness to spacious awareness where you experience the world as it really is. Mm. And he says you must give up your desire to name and to grasp the thing you're describing in order to move into naked awareness. And I'm doing the same thing.
1: Yeah, before we get too much farther, why don't you tell people what remote viewing is actually? Some people might not have any idea. Why don't you kind of describe what that is?
3: Remote viewing is a kind of psychic ability that we explored at Stanford Research Institute for 20 years in a secret program for the U.S. government. The government supported us at Stanford in California to learn how to teach people to get in touch with their psychic ability. And remote viewing is the ability we have to describe and experience things that are hidden from us by space or time. That is, we would sit in our lab in California and describe uh a Soviet weapon factory in Siberia or the American hostages in Iran or a Chinese atomic bomb test in Mongolia or find a American general kidnapped in Italy or a downed airplane in Africa. So when I say that psychic ability is a non-local ability, what I mean is that remote viewing is not at all degraded by looking further and further into the distance. It's no harder to describe a downed airplane in Africa than it is where somebody is hiding in Northern California. That's why we call it non-local. And non-locality is a hot hot topic in modern physics. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we know is that it's no harder to describe something that's going to happen hours or days in the future than it is to describe a contemporaneous event. So when we say that uh, remote viewing or psychic ability is non-local, what we mean is that you have this expanded awareness and you can describe what's happening in the distance or in the future. And none of this is New Age. So this was known to the uh, Buddhists and Hindus, potentially. a Hindu who knew about this at the time of Christ and Padmasambhava wrote about it 800 years later. So this is all... Ancient wisdom written up in very great detail. And in my, my new book, In the Reality of ESP, I have several pages of Buddhist instructions from 2000 years ago describing how you can look into the distance, look into the future, heal the sick, talk to deceased people, remember your previous lives. And the reason you can remember your previous life is there's no time, time is an illusion. So just get this, at the, at the time of Christ, Buddhists were writing about the idea that time is an illusion. There really is no time. Your awareness transcends all of time. And we had to wait for 2,000 years to give Einstein a Nobel Prize for discovering that.
1: What actually got your research started at uh, SRI? I mean, how, how did that program begin?
3: Well, in 1972, uh, I went to a lecture given by my soon-to-be colleague, Hal Puthoff, He's also a physicist, and he was lecturing at Stanford University about Soviet research in parapsychology, and I was lecturing about that sort of thing also. So in the spirit of seeing what the competition is doing, I went to see what Dr. Putov had to say, and I thought he was a very interesting, intelligent guy, and he was already working at Stanford Research Institute. So I had the idea that I would join him there as another laser physicist and maybe we could start an ESP program because he was interested in that as well. So he had contacted the CIA and just about that time in early 72, I was invited to give a lecture at a conference on speculative technology that NASA was holding. And I had a chance to meet von Brown, Brown and R- Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer, Mm-hmm and the uh, administrator of NASA. And I told them about uh, research in parapsychology and brought a ESP teaching machine with me that I had built. And Von Braun actually did very well with my ESP teaching machine. And I was pitching to them to start a program to investigate psychic ability, to teach US astronauts to get in touch with their spacecraft, and also examine the extent to which people would have their brainwaves changed when a friend was seeing flashing lights. That's an experiment that had been done a decade before, published in Science Magazine, and I wanted to replicate that. That shows uh, physiological ESP.
1: Was that the one that involved the twins or whatever, when one twin saw the light, the other twin's brain registered it? Yes, indeed. Okay. The
3: experiment that was published was done with twins, but I had the idea that uh, friends would do okay, and in fact, Uh, A couple of years later, cutting to the chase, we did get the money from NASA. Von Braun urged them to go ahead and give us some money. And working with my good friend, Hella Hammett, the very psychic photographer, when I would have lights flashed in my eyes, her brain waves would change systematically. And we published that in Nature magazine and in the proceedings of the Institute of Electrical Engineers. So that was one of the strong experiments that doesn't require anybody to guess anything. She could sit in her electrically shielded room mm-hmm. and I would experience the annoying light flash. And when I saw the light flash, her brainwaves would change. Wow, that's Even cool. though we were 100 feet away and she was electrically shielded. So uh, I came to Standard Research Institute with money from NASA. Hal came with money from the CIA. And between us, we started a program and we're also working with a great psychic named Ingo Swan, mm-hmm. the New York artist. And he weaned us away from uh, card guessing and describing pictures. He said, if I want to know the picture in the next room, I'll open the door or tear open the envelope. <laughs> oh, okay. Just, since I can focus my attention anywhere on the planet, he said it's a trivialization of his ability to do these little experiments. With pictures and envelopes. So, Swan moved us into the bigger picture, recognizing, as he did, that psychic ability allows you to see shapes and forms and textures rather than
1: to be able to name things. Right. And you did work there at, uh, for uh, CIA and government and all kinds of stuff. Did they ask you to do you know special things? I'm, I'm sure there were some sort of programs going on there since they were financing you.
3: Oh yeah, the one of the first programs we had. Hal and I visited the uh, director of intelligence at the CIA and told him about our psychic hide and go seek. Our first experiment, we would have uh, Ingo Swan or Hella Hamid or another psychic we had. Pat Price was a psychic policeman. So we had an artist, a photographer, and a policeman who are three great psychics. And we did experiments where the head of our lab, our lab director, or a government scientist, would go and hide with one of our researchers, go to some randomly chosen interesting place in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I would be sitting with you, the psychic of the day, and I would say, okay, it's 2 o'clock now, John. Uh, my colleague, Hal Putoff has been kidnapped and taken to some place. I want you to close your eyes and quiet your mind and describe the images that come to mind with regard to where hell is. And that's quite easy to do. And mm-hmm. just keep in mind, if I said, where has hell gone now? There's a child's program. Where in the world is Carmen Santiago? Right. That experiment is impossible. If I say, Hal's been taken somewhere, tell me where he is. As you recognize now, that's an analytical task. You can't tell me where he is, but you can describe the shapes and the feeling and the smells where he is. And later on, somebody who's familiar with the Bay Area will be able to recognize, well, you said that you see a place where you can smell the bay and there's small sailboats with their masts swinging in the breeze and it's near a Chinese restaurant and you see birds sitting on the pilings, you would have the idea that that's probably a nearby marina. right? And that would be the right answer. But uh, you wouldn't as a psychic, you would not be able to say uh, they've gone to the Redwood City Marina or the San Francisco uh, Harbor. Now, that information is not available to you because that's analytical, but you have no trouble at all describing the shapes and the forms. There's little boats there and a the restaurant and birds hanging around. That's all available to you.
1: So you just get little bits of it, and, and somebody oh. else kind of puts it together. Is that what it is?
3: That's right. It's like the uh, famous trip to the Oracle Adelphi. The Oracle Adelphi would describe her impressions of what was going on, and then the priest would try and turn that into an answer that corresponded what the customer really wanted to know. So if you read Herodotus describing the procedure at the Oracle of Delphi, it sounds just like SRI. Mm. The, the, the psychic is somewhat intoxicated with fumes coming from a crevasse in the earth, which we did not do. But she would say whatever her stream of consciousness was, and the priest would then turn that into a report, an examiner verse, and give it to the customer. Just like we would take uh, the comments that Hela Hamid made about where someone was hiding, we would try and evaluate that and write it up in a report and give it to our customer.
1: That's interesting. What type of, uh, well, working with the government, what did they want you to do? I mean, like going to. Uh during the Cold War times, going to Soviet Russia and describe we programs or things you see, that kind of stuff. That's, all that yes. stuff we've heard in the movies is all reality, isn't it?
3: We, we were the real X-Files. Right. And it's a 23-year program worth about $25 million. So in a way, one of the most psychic, one of the most uh, statistically significant, surprising things about our program is that we kept ourselves funded for 23 years doing more or less the same kind of thing. So when we went to John McMahon, who's the director of the CIA, we told him about our psychic hide-and-go-seek that worked quite well. Mm -hmm. a highly significant, successful ability to find where somebody is hiding. And he said, you guys are wasting your time looking at churches and swimming pools in Palo Alto. Uh, We here at the CIA have real targets of national security. If you can describe one of my favorite Soviet targets, we'll support your program. So that was a challenge. So Hal and I then went home. See, we got a hearing from John McMahon, who famously throws people out of his office who he doesn't like. Because he's running a big agency. He's very sensitive to all sorts of, frauds, charlatans, unprepared people coming into his office asking for money. But Hale and I were both known to the CIA for our laser work, so we could at least get a hearing from him. And we then went back to SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and by and by a CIA agent showed up with geographical coordinates of something in Soviet Siberia. So, as always, I was sitting with the psychic, Pat Price, and I said, we've got a target that needs a description, and here are the coordinates. So Price said to me, I'm laying on top of a building, psychically, and there's this giant crane is rolling back and forth over my body. This is the biggest gantry crane I've ever seen. I've got to draw that. So that's about how long that took. Hmm. And he then drew quite accurately, a giant eight-wheel gantry crane with four wheels on either side of a building, which he also drew. So I thought that was pretty unusual and we brought his drawing down to the basement where the CIA person was waiting for us in the vault. And we showed him our drawing and he then unrolled his large classified photograph of a Soviet facility in Semipalatinsk, the Somayat Atomic Facility mm-hmm. and indeed there was a big gantry crane rolling over a building surprisingly like what Price drew. Price drew this eight wheel gantry crane and there was an eight wheel gantry crane rolling back and forth over a building in the photo. So we thought we thought we were done. We thought we, we won. But no, uh, that was the we, we unlocked the we unwrapped the package. What they wanted to know is, what are they doing inside the building? Okay. They already knew about the gantry crane. So the fact that Price drew the gantry crane showed that we were looking at the right place. So we went back to our little shielded room, and he said inside that building, they're trying to assemble a giant steel sphere. It's about 60 feet in diameter, and they're making it out of orange peel slices, sort of of Gores of steel, and they're trying to weld these gores together to make a big sphere. But it's very thick, and they're having trouble doing that. And we gave them that information. And they thought that's very interesting. A uh, big 60 foot sphere sounds like a containment vessel for an atomic bomb test of some kind. And two years later, the Russians rolled the big sphere out of the building. And indeed, it was a particle beam weapon to shoot down our satellites that were taking the pictures. Wow. But because we had described the place so accurately as an R&D facility with a big crane, uh, we got uh, financial support. So the way it worked, we made a deal with the devil, and this one worked out pretty well. We, We did not have to give up our soul. The deal was that we would do operational things for the CIA with half of our time. Look and see how the hostages are doing, uh, find airplanes, so forth. With the other half of the time, we could do experiments trying to understand how ESP works, the functionality of psychic abilities. And the most secret thing about our work is who was supporting it. It became well known that we had a classified program doing psychic stuff at SRI because we were publishing our findings. So it's obvious that we had a a sizable program looking at lots of people, lots of places, but the only thing we couldn't talk about is who's paying for it.
1: And it said you got, what, two decades worth of work there and you got $20 million in funding, too.
3: Yes. So for example, uh, we once uh, were asked, CIA came to us and said, We want to know what's going on at these coordinates. They gave us coordinates. And today is Tuesday. We want to know what's going to happen there on Friday. And Ingo Swann said, I need my colored pencils. because I see a beautiful pyrotechnic display. It looks like a fireworks display. Big hemispherical displays of colored things going on in the air. And there's a row of trucks back at the horizon. And... To a knowledgeable person, uh, CIA was aware that the Chinese were doing an atomic bomb test at their far eastern Mongolian site. And from what Ingo Swan said, they knew that the test would occur and fail, because there was no mushroom cloud. If you set off an atomic bomb, a uranium bomb, and it just burns but doesn't explode, what you get is this pyrotechnic display of uranium burning in air. So they knew on a Tuesday that indeed the Chinese would set off their test on Friday as scheduled and it would fail. So that's the kind of thing that excited people very much that if you're able to see things into the future, this program might even be
1: worthwhile. That's very impressive. I say I actually knew about this subject, but I never realized you could actually see into the future doing this, too.
3: Oh, to jump ahead, I left the program in 1982 as it became more and more classified, and people began to turn the screws on us and not let us publish. I grew up in publishing. My father was a, the editor-in-chief of G.P. Putnam's, so I spent my whole life watching people publish books and I had written a book with Putoff in 1977 called, called Mind Reach, and I was ready to write another book about the following five years' work, and they wouldn't let me. So I quit the program at that point because I wanted to write up. But, you see, by that time, we had learned quite a lot about how to teach people to do psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. So I left in 82, and one of the things that we did in 82 is set up a program to forecast changes in the silver commodity market, okay. So with the idea that we're limited in what we could say about uh, spying on the Russians, but if we could make some money in the market, people might pay attention to us. So we decided to forecast the silver market, and unfortunately, you can't read the numbers on the big board at the commodity exchange. You can't do analytical things, but you could do what we call associative remote viewing. So We could tell the broker each Monday, find four interesting objects and make an association between each object and whether the market goes up a little, goes up a lot, goes down a little, or goes down a lot. And on that Monday, after you've chosen your objects, we will tell you, which object you're going to hand the psychic on friday so i'll interview you with regard to what you're going to see on friday i'm not going to ask you whether silver goes up or down because that's an analytical question so let's say i'm interviewing you on monday morning uh... john can you tell me what i'm going to put in your hand on friday we have no idea what it is it's not yet determined nobody knows the answer what do you feel I'm going to hand you on Friday? And my viewer might say something like, I see this round kind of floppy object. Uh, This thing has kind of a bad smell. Actually, the the target you've got for me is kind of disgusting. It's this round, floppy, (laughs) Uh, I don't know what this could be. I, I don't even want to guess. So I say, that's a terrific description. I'd call John and say, what are your four objects? They say, the up-a-lot object is a champagne bottle this week, uh, up a little object is a Dixie cup, down a little is a book, down a lot is the leftover pancake for my breakfast. I think your guy is describing my pancake.
1: So you could foresee it just by that route, because whatever they put in there is what you could see, which in turn meant the market went up or down then.
3: Right. So based on my psychic's description of the pancake, We put $30,000 in the market and sell silver against a rising market, because we were competing with the Hunt Brothers at this time. And we made some of our biggest hits going short against a rising market, and we made $120,000 in nine weeks. Uh, We made nine forecasts into the market, whether it's up a little or up a lot, down a little or down a lot. So it's a one-in-four game that we were doing. Mm Mm-hmm and we were correct every time.
1: Well, it's a good record.
3: So we made $120,000. Uh, we're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and Nova made a film about us called The Case of ESP. Hmm. Now, that's an interesting story in itself. It was quite a good film, and was shown numerous times on public television, up until our program was terminated in 1995. CIA said America no longer has any serious enemies, so we don't need a psychic spy corps anymore. The program was terminated in ninety five and this interesting film was pulled from all of its sponsors. Oh really? Up until nineteen ninety five. You could buy this interesting film, the case of ESP, you could buy it from public broadcasting or from W G B H in Boston or from time-life books, readily available. And in 1995, it entirely disappeared. So today, if you call Nova and say, uh, I'd like to buy a copy of the case of ESP that you showed in 1984, Nova will tell you there is no such film, even though I have a copy of it on my desk right now
1: basically just got erased. It's non-existent now, huh?
3: That's why It got erased. Uh, but the original film was made by BBC, and I was very involved in the making, and they gave me a master tape. So I have made uh, numerous high-quality DVDs that I give to people. So there are now hundreds of copies of this film circulating, I'm not selling them, of course, because I don't own the copyright. Right. But I was eager for this film not to go out of existence because we did a number of remote viewing on camera for the BBC.
1: Hmm. You said you, you, know, you quit working for the government because of the way... I me tell you something. I, yeah.
3: I am told that the case of ESP has big fractions of itself available on YouTube.
1: Yeah, YouTube, on, so, there's stuff on there that shouldn't even be, so there, there probably is a copy so of that the or parts of it.
3: The case of ESP, and if you want to see what we're doing, you could look there. And I have big pieces of that on my My website is ESPResearch.com.
1: And we'll put a link w- on the show page for you, too.
3: Yeah, www.ESPResearch.com. And I show some of the real-time remote viewing that we did for the BBC. It was a typical uh, experiment. Uh, BBC would go hide with one producer someplace in San Francisco, and it turned out that they had six possible sites. They got to San Francisco, and they they threw a die on the pavement and went to one of the targets. Meanwhile, in my home, I was working with Hella Hammond, and another crew was filming Hella as she described, where the other people had gone to hide. And that was extremely successful.
1: Is there any explanation on why this uh, video was removed or disappeared?
3: No. It, it, it's like in Argentina where people just disappear. You don't know where they went. You don't know why they were taken. They're just gone. That's don't it. ask.
1: I'm going to do research in this one when we're done talking tonight. I wrote it down so I can look it up.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know why why it was pulled. Because it was made by the BBC. Um, BBC knows about it. I called BBC. I was once thinking about selling the film, but they wanted way too much money because they wanted to too long. They wanted to remake a master. They said although I had a so-called uh, three-quarter-inch submaster mm-hmm. that was not up to their standards for commercial stuff, so they wanted ten thousand dollars to make a new commercial master, and I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in people having it. I didn't want to sell it commercially because that would be too expensive.
1: Right. So I'm just giving it away. Of course, then again, if it disappeared once, it could disappear twice. If they went through all that and had it remastered, it might be taken away again. That's right. What Have you worked with, uh, I know you worked with the governments, but how about local police, FBI, and that kind of thing? Have you done work with them?
3: Yes, as a matter of fact, shortly after our program got started, we began in 1972. In 1974, uh, Patricia Hearst was kidnapped. And I'm always shocked when I, I was lecturing at Stanford a few months ago to a group of graduate students in psychology, and nobody had ever heard of Patricia Hearst. Well, Patricia Hearst is the daughter of William Randolph Hearst, Publisher of the San Francisco Examiner, who's one of the wealthiest families uh, in Northern California, she was an 18-year-old undergraduate at U- University of California in Berkeley, and some local terrorists kidnapped her. Uh, organization called the Symbionese Liberation Army kidnapped her, and they wanted the Hearst company to provide food for homeless people. In the Bay Area. So they, they were, that, that's what they wanted to do. What the police wanted to do is find the heiress, and they had no way to do that. So they were so desperate, they came to the psychic com- community at SRI and asked if we could help. And we said, as a matter of fact, that's just what we're especially good at doing. So my colleague, Hal off and I, and the psychic policeman, Pat Price, three of us drove to Berkeley to talk to the detectives and one of the detectives stood up and said, well, we have some questions we want to ask you. And Pat Price who was a no nonsense Irishman said, let me tell you how we're going to do this. Just give me your mug book and I'll tell you who the ringleader is. Okay. So they pulled out this big loose leaf binder, on a big oak table in the station house and probably just stood there turning pages page after page four little pictures to a page, and finally he put his finger on one guy and said, that's the ringleader, and that was Donald DeVries. And in fact, uh, they knew who DeVries was because he had walked away from Folsom Prison a year before. He was incarcerated for some minimal crime, and he just walked away from a low-security prison. They hadn't heard of him since. But Price said, that's the ringleader. They said, well, that's interesting. We know who he is, but, of course, we don't know where to find him. And probably said, well, why don't I tell you where the kidnap car is? And we had already been taken to Patricia Hurst's apartment, and there, were all, and there were still cartridges rolling around on the floor under the bed. So we were able to gather up the cartridges that had been fired, principally at the neighbors, during the kidnapping. And Price said, I see this white station wagon about 50 miles to the north. It's parked near a diner on the highway. And across the highway, across the freeway, there are two large white gas cylinders and the pedestrian overpass over the freeway. And one of the detectives said, well, I know where that is. That's on the way to Vallejo. I live there. And they dispatched a police car to that location, found the white station wagon, and there were still cartridges rolling around on the floor of the station wagon like the ones that we had collected from her apartment. So we were absolutely confident that that was, in fact, the kidnap car. Of course, they weren't in it anymore because of the day-old information, but they got uh, fingerprints and also other information from the kidnap car and we got a commendation letter from the Berkeley Police Department for our work in, in up to that point. Unfortunately, uh, the Police Department and the Alameda County Sheriff's Department and the FBI did not cooperate with one another. These three investigative entities, each of whom wanted the privilege of finding the heiress so they wouldn't share any information and as we all know that she wasn't found she escaped from northern california and went to los angeles all right it's very very much like the nine eleven situation where the cia and the nsa knew the names of two terrorists uh who had come i i don't remember where they had come from probably from afghanistan yeah and they had come to Los Angeles, rented cars, and were driving east to rendezvous at the airport. The CIA and NSA knew all that, but they're not allowed to deal with uh, domestic issues, so they never told the FBI that there are these two terrorists from Afghanistan heading for New York. It was just a complete absurd breakdown in
1: communication. You hear about that a lot. Departments don't want to talk to each other. That's not unusual. Does does the CIA and NSA, do they still have a program like this? Yours, you said they shut down, but I mean, is there still something running? Do you think, you know, a new hidden program or something? My
3: guess is that there is not a program. Okay. Our program was shut down by Robert Gates, who was head of the CIA at the time, and then became our... Secretary of Defense for quite a few years, but he said that we don't need a psychic core anymore. But of course, um, with looking for bin Laden and looking for Saddam Hussein, there may be a psychic core in the basement of the Pentagon that I don't know anything about.
4: Right. That's of course
3: possible, because I have no contact with the government now for a decade. So there might be a psychic core but I
1: don't know. The police department still you know, contact you or anything more recently? No, or they,
3: they, they do not. People call me to find lost objects. Okay. And from time to time. I once did a workshop at the home of a person in Atherton, a wealthy community north of here. And uh, she asked me, uh, could I help her find a tennis bracelet that she had lost? And I said, I have no idea what a tennis bracelet is. You have to tell me what I'm looking for. And she said, well, this is a a diamond bracelet made of platinum, circular bracelet. My husband will kill me if I can't find it. So I said, okay. Uh, I just turned, I was at Lockheed. I had left psychic stuff, and I was working for Lockheed Missiles in Space, putting lasers on airplanes looking for air turbulence. But I just turned my attention to this new problem and said, do you have two 4x4 posts, two white posts, on your property near each other and she said well by the back door we have two posts marking a a walkway from the driveway and I said well I see your bracelet in the grass by those posts and five minutes later she came back and said well thank you so much I I found that Uh, I I have my bracelet It's very helpful she did not say, "Is there anything I can do for you?" <laughs> this is what I thought she might have said. I found this probably fifty thousand dollar trinket, but she she was very grateful, and that required essentially no effort on my part. It has quieted my mind, and described the thing that popped into view.
1: Is remote viewing like an out of body experience that people will do a lot of times? In the, you know, when you're, when you're sleeping, you have those kind of things. Are those the same things? or Are those different?
3: Well, that's sort of a three-part question. The, the first experience, most common psychic experience that people have are precognitive dreams, where they're sleeping and dream about something that's going to happen in the future that they experience as contemporaneous, but it doesn't happen until the future. Okay. That's a very common dream, and that's the first experience that many people have. My experience right now is, as I'm sitting, talking, you, my computer just crashed, probably because I've turned on my electric fan. It's, it's 85 degrees in Palo Alto. So I plugged in my big fan, and I think I crashed my computer. But um, people have dreams. I, the reason I turn to my computer is that I will frequently have a dream about the first thing. Well, it, my day begins. I get a cup of coffee and walk into my office. Mm-hmm. And my homepage is the New York Times, so so that there is always a picture on my screen when I walk into my office, and that picture is the front page of the New York Times. So I will frequently have a dream about what I see on my screen first thing in the morning. So that's a precognitive dream associated uh, with a future event that I experience. Okay. Out-of-body experiences are on a continuum with remote viewing. In remote viewing, people will sit in the laboratory, and I say, describe your mental impressions as you view, as though you're looking at a TV screen. Look at your mental screen, and tell me about the pictures that appear in your awareness. Nobody ever has a bad experience doing that. With a out-of-body experience, you bring your emotionality, sensitivity sexuality whatever you're comfortable with to interact with a scene or a person far away now as you're interacting with your emotionality and so forth with this distant situation you can get in a surprising or frightening situation uh... and we weren't equipped to deal with that my partner and i Mm -hmm. were physicists and we were concerned that we would have somebody come back to our management and say Russell's interviewing me, and the, he separated my consciousness from my body, and I can't get myself put back together.
1: <laughs> That's all and you that need. That would have been the
3: end of our program.
1: Yeah, you're not allowed to destroy people. <laughs>
3: That's right. So, so we we did not do formal out of body experiments. However, uh, working with an experienced viewer. I would often lead that person in such a direction. For example, we once had a uh, a test of our ability, a demonstration of ability test, uh, which we would have. From time to time, the CIA would want to see something, re- remind us that there really is ESP. So one of our tests was, describe Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin, and of course, I had no idea what that might be. <laughs> All right. So I was working with my friend, Hela Hamid, and I said, well, today we're going to the Kremlin. We want to describe Brezhnev's office. And she said, okay, I can do that. Uh, I'm, I'm walking down the corridor of a big building, that's sort of what you would expect. And she said, but at the end of this corridor, there's a big door covered with red leather, and the leather is held in place with brass upholstery tacks. That's what I get. Mm-hmm. So my job is to tell her, okay, I will push open this door, and let's go inside. And she said, okay, I've walked inside now, but it's dark. I said, okay, I'll turn on the lights, and let's look around. So she's on the right side, there's a big desk covered with a sheet of glass. On the left, there's windows, and windows look down on Red Square, and behind the desk, there's a door. So I said, okay, I'll open the door, and let's see what's there. Yeah, the flight of stairs. So she and I spent the afternoon, or spent an hour, traveling through the Kremlin, wandering around, describing the computer room in the basement under Brezhnev's office. And we understand that that was all largely correct. I actually got to Brezhnev's office two years later as part of, I, I was taken there. But I was doing. I, I went to Russia to give a lecture on remote viewing, mm-hmm. and they showed me around the Kremlin. So I got to actually see the red leather door, the desk with a big sheet of glass, and look out the window on the on the Red Square. So she described entirely correctly uh, this whole thing. But it was described in a very contemporaneous way. We'd open the door, we turn on the lights, we look around, we go here, we go there. Right. So it's a lot like an out-of-body experience.
1: That's actually pretty interesting. I mean, you, you couldn't have guessed at that, especially a large red door with brass tacks in it. That's right. You know, on like everyday psychic thing, I know you're in. I was telling you off air that uh, growing up, I used to answer the phone before it rang and things like that. And you, you said that wasn't quite that uncommon, actually. A lot of people do that. Is this all like related, to all the psychic, all interactive? I mean, if you do one thing like that, are you more apt to be able to do the remote viewing easier? Or is there any difference in like all the different psychic abilities?
3: What the abilities? say is that you move from conditioned awareness where your life is in defense of your ego and your story. You move from conditioned awareness to spacious awareness where there's no limits on what you're able to experience. Hmm. Your awareness fills all of space and time. In fact, in my new book, The Reality of ESP, I describe all of what we've been describing. and In addition, I tell people how to develop their own psychic abilities. Because remote viewing is quite easy to do, and what I invite people to do is to find a partner who will bring you interesting little objects in a bag, and you can learn to separate your mental noise and other distractions from the psychic signal.
1: when didn't you say that uh, actually uh, remote viewing is reasonably easy to do and we all have the potential to do it? That, that's absolutely correct. Something else, actually, another weird thing. Uh, when I was younger, uh, you, you ever hear that thing where you hold the deck of cards and you run your finger across it and, you know, you can feel an ace or something. You familiar with that? It's not really a trick, but you familiar oh, with I that I want to
3: comment on your—, on your... Oh, go ahead. That, that's harder to do. That That's a kind of analytical task. The other thing you mentioned is that you know who's going to call you. Oh, right. An English researcher, um, Rupert Sheldrake, Mm -hmm. has done an experiment like that extensively and published it, where he would have quite a number of people participating, and each person would give him um, the names of people that they're very familiar with. Right. And he would then randomly choose one of those four people, and have that person make a phone call. But before his subject could pick up the phone, it was all videotape, a very fancy experiment. Mm -hmm. He he would have a friend call the subject, but before the subject picked up the phone, the phone rang, and uh, Sheldrake would say, okay, someone is calling, who is that? And they were, because there are four different people, it could be one of four people, and you expect a 25% hit rate, but these people were... 50% Uh, 50% correct or even more. So a highly significant experiment that is. Some of the people in his group were really very, very good at guessing who's on the other end of the line, and it's a well-controlled experiment with uh, surveillance. So there's no uh, cell phone leakage or no pre-arrangement. All right. So people do have the impression that they know who's calling, and that impression is frequently correct. Well, this is a nice experiment that Sheldrake did.
1: Well, I found out when it used to happen to me is, uh, you know, if I wasn't paying attention, it would happen. But if, like, somebody would be under pressure, you know, they're like, okay, who's this in the next phone call? I couldn't usually do it, but I could do it when I wasn't trying. Is, is that a normal occurrence? You know, if you, you don't try, yeah. you can?
3: <laughs> That's right. In these experiments that I'm describing at Stanford Research Institute, we would have a cool-down period. We would explain to people uh, what we expected of them. And what we expected is for them to b- just, be qui- just be quiet, and I made it easy. It was kind of psychic hide-and-go-seek. And I was the interviewer for the first decade of experiments. though so mm-hmm. I had a job. My, my new job was as a psychic travel agent. <laughs> okay. I, I never knew where we were going because they were all double-blind experiments. But my job was to interview the person, get them to describe the images that appeared in their awareness.
1: Right. Now, the other thing I was talking about there was like the card one. I, I saw it somewhere where if you run your hand across the card, you can feel like an ace. And uh, I had tried that, and it worked. And it got to where I could have someone pick any card of any suit and run my hand across it, and I could actually get it.
3: How was uh, it th- with the cards fanned on the table?
1: No, actually... All together in the deck. I would just run my thumb across the top edge of the cards, and after a little bit, the card I wanted would actually, I could feel it, and I could pull it out of the deck.
3: Well, that sounds like a very special ability. We—we we uh, There are card tricks that that resemble that, that people do, but it's very hard to do such an analytical task. See, if I ask you to find the four diamonds, right, that, then you're all queued up for this quite analytical task. Mm -hmm. and that in our experience of that particular thing that that would be very difficult
1: i used to do that a lot i can still do it but not as much as i when i was younger but sometimes i would say somebody would tell me to get like uh the three of hearts i might pull the three of diamonds but i would almost always pull at least a three but not always the correct suit and I, i never understood it always worked i just never understood how and if i really tried to do it with too much pressure i could never do it then
3: well well we believe is that we live in a non-local world. The idea in modern physics of non-locality first proposed in the 1930s by Schrodinger, Erwin Schrodinger, who perfected quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And he said that the world is interconnected and he invented the idea of, of things being entangled. Entanglement was his word, in German of course the idea that two particles that are born together, two elementary particles traveling in opposite directions at the speed of light are still entangled Mm -hmm. like identical twins. So that if you grab one particle and polarize it, you affect the other one, which can be thousands of miles away. So from that came the idea of entanglement. And that really describes the world that we live in now. So that in an entangled world, You and I live in the ordinary three-dimensional manifold. We live in ordinary linear space-time. So you and I are sitting here 2,000 miles away. However, what we know from our work is that although our physical bodies are 2,000 miles away, our consciousness has no separation at all. Mm. So in this four-dimensional space-time, where each of the dimensions is a complex quantity, Uh, the universe is really much more complicated than we think there is. So uh, the deck may be comprising just 52 cards and a little cube. Uh, If you have access to the whole eight-dimensional space-time, you may be able to break that apart in surprising ways. I hadn't thought of that before. Hmm. But if you're able to view the whole thing in a larger manifold, uh, you might expect to be able to do things like that.
1: I never really thought too much of it when I did it. It was kind of almost like a party trick. I didn't I never quite understood it but I used to be able to do it pretty well all the time. I originally found out I could do that cuz I'd play blackjack with my father when I was young and I was telling him not to pick up cards. It was a sub I didn't realize I was doing it until he mentioned it once. I'd be like, "Oh, don't pick that one up. That'll be too much." And I was reading the cards and that that's kind of where I first learned that I could do some things like that. It's very interesting. I have to get up there to California and visit with you now.
3: I'll be very happy to see you. So I'm happy for this opportunity to tell you what we've been up to. You can see into the future. You can see into the distance. You can make money in the stock market. You can find your car keys. But the most important use of psychic abilities, in my opinion, is to discover who you are. After a decade or two of doing this, it becomes obvious to me that you couldn't possibly be just a physical body because your awareness and your experience fills all of space time. You can describe what's happening in Russia or Chicago or New York. So your awareness is not limited to your ordinary physical body. So there's got to be more to you than the meat and potatoes that is just sitting in the chair. So the reason that I'm running around still teaching people to do uh, psychic uh, remote viewing is that I'm helping people to get in touch with the part of themselves that's psychic, in touch with their psychic awareness. And that's easy to learn, and people are very eager to get in touch with that. So if you want to know more about that, please take a look at my website, which is ESPResearch.com, or my brand new book called The Reality of ESP, A Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. very happy to have the chance to chat with you today.
1: And we'll put both those links right on our site, too, with the show for you. Anything else you'd like to say in closing?
3: No, I am just encourage people to get in touch with their psychic selves and incorporate that into their lives. There's both a a scientific and a spiritual part to this, and both of them are worth exploring.
1: Well, Russell, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and it's been a fascinating talk. Uh, We're certainly going to have to make some time to have you on again. Thank you.
3: Good. Thank you very much.
1: We'll be right back after this break.
0: TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour long radio show sure to give you the heebie jeebies. Check out ufo info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com.
1: Welcome back. I was just talking with Mike off air about that UFO caught from the airplane, and you watched that video, didn't you, Mike?
2: Yeah, it's it's really really interesting, and apparently it's caught the attention of a lot of the world. It's gotten 5.7 million views. And this one online, what April seventh, so earlier this month. That's pretty incredible.
1: It's quite an interesting video. I mean, if it, it could be a fake nowadays, you can never tell. But it doesn't appear to be. But you don't know. But it's whatever it is. It's definitely not like another airplane or a helicopter. It's just uh, looks like a big white top hat flying around.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, you can't see a string. So the thing that I'm worried about, since it is over Seoul, South Korea, is. Could this be something from the North Koreans? Because they had that satellite launch. You know, maybe this is uh, an experimental aircraft.
1: A flying hat?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, with the North Koreans, you never know.
1: We have those drones flying around. They have flying white hats. Think maybe the people won't notice them?
2: Yeah, maybe it's a remote control camera or something like that.
1: Whatever it is, it's interesting. It was caught on a camera phone, too, which makes it a little bit better. Those aren't quite as easy to edit as if you're using your normal video camera.
2: Well, I would like to know, I mean, if this was on a a camera phone, what were they doing just... It looks like they're either standing somewhere or flying in a helicopter, maybe? I mean, what were they doing? No, it's
1: it's a jetliner. They're flying in a plane. They're just filming out the window. A lot of people do that nowadays. They just film out the window... Looking for the wings to fall off and birds to fly into the engines and things like that.
2: <laughs> well, that's that's kind of morbid.
1: <laughs> haven't, haven't you done that? Last time you were in a plane, weren't you filming things? Looking for the gremlin on the wing, pulling the things apart?
2: No, I, I don't fly.
1: Do you remember that movie?
2: No, I, that's way before my time. Oh, no, they did a remake of it. <laughs> so, no, I, you know, this one, it's a little bit more clear than this other video that's uh, just gone online, too. This UFO hovers over Canadian neighborhood.
1: You know, what's interesting about that one is the lights. Did you watch that? The, the lights are pretty extreme. I mean, the, the colors and the brightness. And again, that's not a helicopter or a plane.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering what it, it's especially strange. It looks like it's cycling through, like it's spinning around. The lights are spinning around. But at the same time, I mean, it doesn't appear to be moving. It's just kind of hovering there.
1: Yeah, and the lights, except I got it on now, the The lights are so bright. But then they appear outside the area where you think the thing is. It appears to be a lot bigger than what it looks like. I mean, there's, you know what I mean? The outline must be a lot bigger than you can see.
2: Yeah, it could just be reflections, too. I guess this is, it says that it's um, the red lights reflecting on the window are from the camera. So this was shot through a window, apparently. So maybe that's causing some of the glare.
1: I don't know. It's hard to say. It's interesting. It's uh, Well, that's only got 4,000 hits on this one.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, these UFO videos, it's so difficult nowadays to determine what's real and what isn't. Because people are so good at, at creating computer graphics.
1: Oh, it's CGI nowadays. You can't tell. That's why you got to look at them and try to determine. But you can never tell, actually, without getting the... Original video from somebody
2: my favorite part of these clips are what the people are saying while they're filming it (laughs) Yeah, I I wish we had a translator for that one in South Korea because I mean What do you say when you see a UFO and you just happen to be there with your camera? You know
1: people almost always say stupid things. They don't realize it's gonna be broadcast at the time They always say dumb things
2: (laughs) go. What's what's that bright light out there? I think I would start acting like a broadcaster and i would narrate the whole thing
1: <laughs> yeah well that's you that's not a normal person <laughs> you would take your right hand and hold it up to your ear and talk in that old radio voice right like that
2: yeah and here we see a <laughs> ufo
1: there you go now what was that other article you were sending me i've heard about that before to the haunted home in new jersey where the people are trying to sue their landlord to get out of their lease
2: oh this is huge this is uh this article is gone viral in the past couple of days it came out on sunday so uh last sunday so it's fairly recent and this is from the uh what is this here the new jersey real time news uh, it says a, a toms river couple is suing their landlord for 2250 their security deposit claiming that in abundance of paranormal activity forced them to vacate only a week after moving into the rental home. Hmm. So there are these two people, Jose Chinchilla, that's his actual name, and Beyonce, (laughs) Michelle Kellen, said that odd things began happening soon after they moved in. They heard whispers, footsteps, doors slamming, and lights flickering. And they've done a whole uh, investigative report on this. They actually have a camera set up in the house. So... People can can view it and see if they can spot any of this paranormal activity. Oh, they got a
1: live webcam set up there.
2: Oh yeah. Well, and the the owner of the home actually is not buying this at all, and he's countersuing because he thinks they just want to get out of their lease, so they invented this story. I
1: can't wait to see this in the courts.
2: <laughs> but I, you know that is fascinating because if the court actually rules that this is legitimate, it could be a legal precedent for the existence of ghosts. And that, that doesn't happen very much.
1: No, it's going to be an interest. I mean, it could be legitimately haunted. I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts, because uh, you know as well as I do that stuff does happen. But it could be a complete fake story, too, just to get out of their lease. I mean, you have no idea. I saw I saw their investigators look at it and a, a bowling pin fell over, but that really didn't convince me.
2: Yeah, well, that's, that's going to be the big question, is how are they going to prove these allegations? Because... Even though they've got these cameras set up and everything, it's going to be very difficult to go before a judge and present some kind of evidence that these things are occurring.
1: And that EVP, did you hear the EVP? I didn't hear anything on that thing. Did you listen to that on the video?
2: No, I didn't hear the EVP, but supposedly it says, let it burn.
1: That's what they say, but I listened to it a couple times and I didn't hear anything remotely close to that.
2: Well, all those EVPs sound like that. It's like, tsh, bar. Tsh.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, EV... Oh, he said, help me. There are some real ones. I've heard of them. As a matter of fact, I have one. But a lot of them, they make no sense. And then the people tell you what they say, which you should never do because then it's preconceived in your mind already. So you're listening for that. But I'm, oh, not, yeah. a, I'm not a big EVP fan myself.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's always cool when these stories gain this kind of traction, especially when it's not around Halloween. So it's entertaining to us anyway.
1: Yeah, to say the least. Anything else? Any other stories you've heard about?
2: That's about it for news stories. Uh, I got another top ten list for us. I know that our audience really enjoys those. And this one is kind of a special one. It's it's being debuted for the first time here on Thresholds Radio I'm not even going to post this on my website until next month. As it should so, be. Yeah, we're we're getting an exclusive sneak peek here. Right. <laughs> so this is the top ten tales of witchcraft in Illinois. A little bit uh, unusual, but you know we we like to talk about well, all kinds of different aspects. All of your
1: top movie. ten lists are unusual.
2: Well, I've I've got twenty some of them, so I, think I need my, to keep I think my up them.
1: favorite out of all of yours was uh, the top eight UFO for some reason.
2: Yeah, maybe because of the contributors. Oh, that's right! I wrote that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, you did. So.
1: Okay, go, go ahead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, now many historians have attempted to dismiss tales of witchcraft as superstitions of the past. But these stories prove that witchcraft stories have been told throughout the state's history. So from the very first French settlers all the way until the present day. So now I've gone, this is kind of a labor of love because I've gone through all kinds of newspaper archives and dusty volumes to dig up these stories. So this is a very special list. So we're going to start with number 10. Number 10 is the St. Omer Witch's Grave. This is around Ashmore, Illinois. Originally, I thought it was in the town of Ashmore, but it's actually outside of Ashmore. Coincidentally, it's also near Ashmore Estates. That's what I was going to
1: ask you. It's in the same area as that then, huh?
2: Yeah, and there is no connection between the two. Yeah, other than it's just in a generally weird area where a lot of these stories take place. So St. Omer Cemetery is home to an unusual family monument that some say looks like a crystal ball on top of a pyre. According to local lore, Carolyn Barnes, one of the four people buried under the massive stone, was put to death for practicing witchcraft. It is said that no pictures can be taken of her monument, and that it glows on moonless nights. Now, I've personally disproven that many times. (laughs) The only evidence for the legend seems to be the gravestone's dramatic design, the way local citizens grow nervous whenever the story is mentioned, and most strikingly, Carolyn's impossible date of death chiseled into the granite, February 31st. Of course, we know that usually there are only 28 days in February. Right. This, This monument also faces north and south, while most headstones are oriented east and west. Now, there's no historical or documentary evidence supporting the notion that this woman was a witch or that she was accused of witchcraft, but nevertheless, the legend has persisted.
1: She so didn't have, like, witch paperwork or nothing?
2: No. And actually, it's kind of tragic because she only died a couple of months after her husband. Her husband died in a sawmill accident, and her cause of death is, is listed as double pneumonia.
4: Hmm.
2: So we go on to number nine. This is another witch's grave in central Illinois. This is the Chesterville Witch in Chesterville. Now, Chesterville is a small Amish and Mennonite community that consists of no more than a few dozen houses located a couple of miles away from Rock Home Gardens. Within the neatly trimmed grounds of Chesterville Cemetery, an old oak tree stands at the edge of the woods that separates the graveyard from the river. The peculiar thing about the tree is the iron fence that surrounds it and the old stone marker that no longer bears a name. According to Troy Taylor, who's a local author here, this is the grave of a woman who turned up dead after being accused of witchcraft in the early 1900s after she challenged the conservative views of the local Amish church elders. The town planted a tree over her grave to trap her spirit inside and prevent her from taking revenge. And her ghost can still be seen from time to time hanging around the area. Where is that one at?
1: Where did you say that was at?
2: It's uh, in Chesterville, Illinois, which is very close to Arcola. It's uh, in Amish country over there.
1: I wonder if that's... I've heard the story before where they put a tree on top of the grave to keep her in her grave or something. I wonder if that's the same story.
2: Well, it's also featured... In the movie Ernest, scared stupid, <laughs> were <where> they bury? No, <laughs> now, <laughs> now over we're the talking trolls.
1: classic movies too.
2: <laughs> that was a, an awesome movie, by the way. <laughs> but it's the same principle, right? So they bury the troll in the ground, and then they they uh, plant this tree over it, so he's like trapped in the tree roots. So that's what they attempted to do with this woman.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
2: <laughs> Number eight. Is one of the weirdest on the list, and that's saying a lot. This is the persecution of Toby Allen. This happened in both Joliet and Chicago. Now, this is from 1879, and in this year, the Chicago Daily Tribune, as the Chicago Tribune was called at the time, they ran a series of articles about a man named Toby Allen who alleged that the state of Illinois had hired a witch to torment him. <laughs> It it began with a letter that he sent to a Chicago alderman. During his incarceration in the Joliet State Penitentiary, he explained in the letter, the state of Illinois hired a man named Johnson to practice witchcraft on the inmates in order to keep their bedclothes clean. Instead, this Mr. Johnson caused the deaths of several inmates, compelled Toby to cut off one of his own fingers and, quote, whispered in his ear so he couldn't work. Now, Toby appealed to his alderman to have the mayor look into the matter and alleviate his torment, but no public action was ever taken. And I think this guy, Toby, was picked up in the aftermath of the Chicago fire. Uh, I think he was picked up for looting, so it's kind of an interesting story.
1: It's actually one I've heard of, and it's in an area I know, Joliet and Chicago. Instead of these normal cities and towns, I think you make up.
2: (laughs) And this is, uh, you know, there's other parts of the state other than Chicago.
1: (laughs) Not not when you're born in the southwest suburbs, there isn't.
2: (laughs) Well, number seven is The Strange Case of Elizabeth Friend. This comes from McDonough County, Illinois, where I went to graduate school. Now, on a farm near the meandering banks of Hogwaller Branch in southwestern McDonough County, a man named James Spiva tossed and turned at night, felt tired during the day, and was afflicted with bad luck. First his cows gave bad milk, then his favorite dog died, and finally his oxen went missing. Boy, do I feel like him on some days. (laughs) His brother William, he was a quote-unquote rural physician, which at the time uh, was sort of like a doctor, but combined also with...
1: Like Granny and the Beverly Hillbillies?
2: Yeah, you know, basically he... He was also known as a witchmaster, so if somebody felt that they were bewitched, he would come and break the spell, right? So he thought that his brother had been bewitched, and their suspicion fell on this woman named Elizabeth Friend, who was sick with typhoid fever. So James drew an image of her, nailed it to a tree, and shot it with a silver bullet. Around the same time, she succumbed to her illness— and James openly claimed that he had rid himself of this witch, so he was tried and convicted of her death. But luckily for him, a skeptical lawyer passed by while his execution was being carried out and convinced the judge to let James free. Years later, the New York Times reported on this incident, but mixed up the names of the participants. That's actually where I heard of it originally, was in the New York Times, and then traced the story back, and I was actually able to get the original court documents about the case. So this so was actually this, a
1: legitimate one, then, you can Yeah, prove. this
2: really legitimately happened. Uh, and let me tell you, it's incredibly hard to decipher cursive writing from the 1800s. Yeah,
1: I'm sure it is.
2: And these people's names, they were all spelled differently, too. So that's a, another nightmare. Now, number six is one from my area, from Rockford, Illinois, This is about Beulah, the Meridian Witch. Now, a a witch named Beulah was rumored to have lived along Meridian Road, west of Rockford, Illinois, during the 1960s and 70s. It was said that she developed her powers as a young girl after being disfigured by shards from the lens of her glass speculum. She refashioned the shards into a divination mirror. She was also said to have two hounds, one black and one white. In 1965, it was alleged that Beulah caused the disappearance of several local teens who had gone looking for her. According to author William Gorman, Beulah was actually a widowed hermit who lost her mind after several schoolchildren died in a fire at the one-room schoolhouse where she taught. This author believes that her spirit is not at rest because of the torment she suffered in life. So that's kind of a, a case of someone who is tormented for being a witch, and then it's believed now her ghost actually haunts the area because of that.
1: See? Say she's a witch, she turns into a
2: witch. (laughs) (laughs) And number five is one of the oldest witchcraft tales. This is The Hanging of Moreau. This is from Cahokia, Illinois. Now, in 1720, not too many people know this, by the way, in 1720, a Frenchman named Philippe-François Renault purchased 500 African slaves in Santo Domingo and brought them to Fort Deschartes in what is now known as Monroe County, Illinois. The French living along the Mississippi River believed that some of these slaves possessed supernatural powers. In 1779, a slave named Moreau, Emmanuel, or Morris, depending on the source, confessed to the murder of his master by, quote, devilish incantation, and necromancy. Colonel John Todd, lieutenant commandant of the county of Illinois, originally condemned Moreau to be burned at the stake on the banks of the Mississippi, as was demanded by the court at Kaskaskia, but he later ordered a militia captain to guard the slave from the mob and administer a more merciful execution. It was said that he was either shot or hung, Becoming the only person to be executed for witchcraft in the history of Illinois. Oh, really? That's a very uh, old case, a very significant case there.
1: There's only been one person killed in Illinois for witchcraft then?
2: That's correct. Uh, Legally killed anyway. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Illegally, it still happens to today.
2: Yeah, it very well may have. Uh, Now, number four is Eva Locker. This is from Williamson County, Illinois. Williamson County is kind of a a very blood-soaked place. It has a very tumultuous history, uh, but we won't get into that right now. So during the 1830s, on a place called Davis's Prairie, there was a woman named Eva Locker who was widely reputed to be a witch. Eva was notorious for her ability to steal milk from cows by hanging a towel over a rack or door and then magically wringing out the milk from the towel. Pioneers of the area blamed this old spinster for maladies of all kinds. Quote, She could do wonders and inflict horrible spells on the young, such as fits, twitches, jerks, and the like. And many an old lady took to the rickets at the mere sound of her name. Uh. This was written by Milo Irwin, author of The History of Williamson County, Illinois. Now, according to historian John W. Allen... Eva had the ability to kill cattle by shooting them with balls of hair, which were found in the stomachs of the afflicted animals. Whenever Eva Locker struck, the men of Williamson County sent for Charlie Lee, a noted witch master from Hamilton County, (laughs) who broke Eva's spells by piercing an effigy of her with silver bullets.
1: This stuff's got to be true, because you could not make this thing up.
2: Well, she was very well-known. There's a bunch of different books of Illinois folklore that mention her. So it would have been fascinating to live during that time and actually hear the story firsthand.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you do anything wrong, if you blink the wrong way, they're going to burn you at the stake.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is uh, number three is Black Annie. This is from Mount Vernon, Illinois. Now, between the late 1860s and early 1930s, Mount Vernon was plagued by the appearance of a, a female spirit known variously as Black Annie, the Lady of Sorrow, or Cyclone Annie. According to Michael Norman, sightings of Annie began when the citizens of Mount Vernon ran off a witch who was threatening their cattle. They thought they were rid of her until February 9, 1888, when a tornado touched down in Mount Vernon and destroyed a half mile swath of homes and businesses.
1: And they blamed her for it, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) and it killed uh, 37 and injured as many as 800 people. So after the disaster, several eyewitnesses reported seeing a woman dressed in black, wailing and screaming, wandering among the debris. In 1918, residents of Mount Vernon were terrified by the presence of a woman dressed in black who chased pedestrians. And finally... Black Annie was blamed for a series of strange attacks in 1936 involving sleeping powder thrown through open windows.
1: Did she throw cats at people, too?
2: (laughs) That would would be incredible. I would be terrified.
1: (laughs) I just picture the Catwoman from The Simpsons for some reason.
2: (laughs) Well, so basically, I mean, this Black Annie lady has been blamed for all kinds of unfortunate things that go on in this town. She's just
1: misunderstood.
2: Well, it could be. Now, there were two girls that were definitely misunderstood that are number two. These are the Williams sisters. This is from Frankfort, Illinois, another are southern Are you serious? American.
1: Frankfort, Illinois? Yeah. I lived there for 26 years.
2: Really? Down in southern Illinois?
1: No, I lived in the other <laughs> Frankfort, Illinois. There, there's oh. two
2: of them? <laughs> yeah, there's one down in uh, southern Illinois that's actually named after a fort that was called Frank's Fort.
1: Oh, that's great to actually have two uh, cities with the same name in the same state. There's a no-brainer there. (laughs)
2: Let me guess, you're talking about the suburb of Frankfurt?
1: Yeah, that's where I was.
2: Well, that doesn't count. (laughs) So, for our purposes... It
1: didn't count when I was there either, really.
2: (laughs) The Williams sisters, they're from the other Frankfurt.
1: Okay, the fake one.
2: (laughs) uh, Which actually probably was there before the suburban one. But anyway, in 1871... A farmer's two daughters, 16 and 18 years of age, created quite a stir when they went on nightly dances around the edge of their roof, ate flies, and spoke to each other in a language only they could understand. (laughs) Their dances were said to be accompanied by shrieks, groans, and acrobatic feats. Hundreds of visitors from around Illinois were said to have witnessed the strange performances, and both the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times reported on the incident. The sisters claim to have been bewitched by an old woman who lived nearby in retribution for having refused to become witches themselves. So I I find it interesting that the New York Times used to write all these stories about witchcraft in Illinois, and they would always write it in the most condescending way possible. It's just,
1: yeah, they're trying to make fun of us.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like somehow, oh, Illinois is this backward state where people still believe in this stuff.
1: (laughs) And what was the uh, date on this
2: one you said? This one was from the uh, 1870s, Uh. but the article in the New York Times was actually printed in like 1911, something around there.
1: Well, News was kind of slow in those days, though.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, let's go back down the list. At number 10, we had the St. Omer Witch's Grave. Number 9, we had the Chesterville Witch. Number 8, the Persecution of Toby Allen. Number 7, the Strange Case of Elizabeth Friend. Number six, Beulah the Meridian Witch. Number five was The Hanging of Moreau. Number four was Eva Locker. Number three was Black Annie. Number two was the Williams Sisters. And number one is Mary Worth from Wadsworth, Illinois. You may be familiar with this story.
1: Yeah, I've heard that one before.
2: Now, According to legend, Mary Worth was a notorious witch who lived on a farm west of Gurnee in Lake County in the mid-1800s. Prior to the Civil War, she would capture runaway slaves and torture them in her barn. Outraged locals took the law into their own hands and burned her to death. Some say her bones were buried in St. Patrick's Cemetery, but others say they were buried on her farm. Years later, a house was built over the foundation of the former barn. The family who lived there found a stone on the property and used it as a step beneath their front door. Poltergeist activity quickly followed. In 1986, the house burnt to the ground, and subsequent efforts to build at the location have failed. Some researchers believe this tale is the origin of the Bloody Mary urban legend. Have you heard that before?
1: Yeah, I have. It's very rare when I've actually heard some of your stories. Generally, I just think you make them all up, but I've heard of that one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you, these are frighteningly real. And actually... Something interesting, I've been researching witchcraft in Illinois for several years, and there was a a book written about the folklore of Adams County, which is in the far, far western part of Illinois, uh, bordering the Mississippi River. And there was a man who worked at a local college, and he went around during the Great Depression and basically just collected stories from everyone.
1: Isn't that what you do?
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he he did it much more systematically than I did. He actually talked to people. I tend to just have my nose in books. Okay. But he came up with I I would say dozens if not hundreds of tales of witchcraft from that one county. And they there were people in the 1930s who still believed that uh they could cause all kinds of things to happen, you know, if they uh did certain things with apples or i remember one of the spells involved killing a cat and using the cat's brains for something <laughs> i mean some of this was really gruesome stuff but it was you know it was still widely believed and a lot of these were african americans who were descended from these slaves who had been brought to illinois uh, prior to illinois becoming a state when it abolished slavery
1: that's interesting. I didn't realize there was so much like that in Illinois.
2: Yeah, not not very many people do. And so far, although I keep seeing some of these stories cropping up, there has not been a book written on the subject. And I'm oh,
1: well, there you really, go.
2: Really hoping to finish it before anybody else gets their hands on it.
1: Oh, you've started on it already?
2: Yeah, I did, but it was basically my work was just interrupted. I I did present a paper on the subject uh, back, I think it was last year's Illinois History Conference. Uh, I I wrote a paper called Strange Performances, and it was accepted at the Illinois History Conference. So it's a really interesting subject, and I really need to get back into it.
1: That's cool. So you got anything else for us, Mike? Anything else new and exciting?
2: Yeah, there's an event coming up on April 28th. This is for probably not some of our international listeners, but if you're in the Illinois or the Midwestern area, you might want to come and check out this paranormal conference that's happening at the VFW in Olney, Illinois, on <laughs> April yeah, twenty. I, I don't
1: think a lot of our listeners <laughs> from England will be coming in to go to the VFW, you're right. <laughs> no,
2: but if you want to see albino squirrels, Olney is one of the only places where you can find them. What? Yeah, they have uh, white, they're not true albinos, they're just
1: white. <laughs> they're dyed.
2: <laughs> no, they're really, it's a family of white squirrels. And and they go to the VFW? A, no, if you had a choice between striking one of these squirrels with your car and a child, you would hit the child because <laughs> apparently they're very legally protected. Okay. So, but that's irrelevant. The event is on April 28th. It's being organized by the only paranormal investigators and paranormal investigations of Midwest America. Those two groups are organizing it. It's going from twelve PM to four PM. And I, of course, will be the keynote speaker. So it's gonna be very exciting.
1: impressive. Michael Clean and Albino Squirrels. I can hear our international audience planning their trips now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you just can't get enough of Mike Clean. I mean, I spoke at the uh, Chicago Paranormal Conference last year.
1: Okay, we got anything else here, Mike?
2: That's about it for right now.
0: All right, we hope you enjoyed the show. You can catch us next Sunday right here, ufo-info.com at 7:30. Or, hey, if you can't make Sundays, Friday nights are always fun on the edgeonear.com from 10 to 11. We have our hour-long Edge show. So check that out, too. We'll be back next week. See you then. you <laughs>